Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year has gone by incredibly quickly, but it's always nice to pause and take stock. What's something you're proud of in 2024 so far? What's something you still want to accomplish this year? I know I'm guilty of falling into a routine and not always thinking about the bigger picture, but as the great Ferris Bueller once said, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you can miss it. So it's crucial to take a moment to celebrate your wins and make adjustments for the rest of the year. Therapy can help you contextualize your progress and set achievable goals for the next six months. As you surely know by now, it's not only for people who have experienced major trauma. Therapy is helpful in all kinds of ways, including learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. If you've been considering trying therapy, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and was specifically designed to be flexible and customizable to your schedule. To get started, just fill out a brief questionnaire that matches you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash film daily. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Monday, December 3rd, 2018. On today's episode, we're going to talk about what we've been up to at the water cooler. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Serretta, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Senior Writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And Writers Quatran Bowie. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello. It's officially December, guys. We're officially in, uh, I guess, Christmas time. Even though I've had a Christmas tree up since <laughs> since October, um, but uh, you know, let's just jump into what we've been up to. Uh, let's start first with Jacob. What have you been doing? Uh, yes, I spent a great deal of my weekend finalizing my office. <laughs> More than a year after moving into my house, my office is finally ready to be used on a regular basis. I installed a light and a ceiling fan, which is the worst process in the world, and I hate it so much. I did a reworking of the various books and shelves. Previously, I had some areas where they were so jam-packed, some doors had a hard time opening, so I had to re-spread things out. And I documented a lot of the results on Twitter. If you, if you go to my Twitter, at Jacobus Hall, you can see uh, all the shelf porn I posted. A lot of people wanted to see more shelves, so I indulged them in myself. Uh, it's one of the things when we moved into this house, we decided rather than have a central library, as we had in previous apartments, we wanted to rather have one room crammed full 
every room in the house now has books. Even the bathrooms have books. So I posted a lot of pictures of my office and of where all the various uh, books in the house ended up. And I'll put that link in the show notes. And after that, I finished my Christmas shopping. I went straight out with a plan one day. I uh, spent half a Saturday hitting up various stores. And I am done. No more rushing. No more worrying. Um, completely set. So I'm ready to just have December happen to me as opposed to try to fight against it. And you also took a photo of the infamous book that we speak about every week here on the podcast. Oh, yes. Uh, we'll, <laughs> yeah. we'll link an image of that in the show notes uh, in the more section for people who want to check that out. Uh, because it was much different than I was imagining. I was imagining it being like this really large book, this old tome, and it looks very new and modern. I know it's a recent reprinting of apparently an older book. But if it was an older tome, it would be a cool thing, Peter. Instead, it's this super <laughs> tacky looking, like bad graphic design cover, which makes it even worse. It makes it even more nightmarish. Like if it was, if it looked old, it looked like a tome. I'd treasure it instead of like treat it as the piece of awful thing, awfulness that it is. <laughs> uh, a few weeks ago on this uh, water cooler podcast, Jacob talked about getting a weighted blanket, and I was browsing the aisles at Target. I think the same night. As uh, we recorded that water cooler episode, and at Target, one of the end caps, there was they were selling weighted blankets. So I took that as a sign, and I bought it. And uh, for the last few weeks, I've been using this weighted blanket, and I have to agree with Jacob. It is very comforting. It is uh, very calming. It, it, it's a blanket. For those of you who didn't hear, it's a blanket that has, like, these weighted beads. So, it, like, it has a lot of weight to it on top of you um if i have only one complaint i'm not sure if you have the same one jacob did you buy a target i know about my amazon amazon uh if there's and only one complaint i have is mine's a little small like it like doesn't always cover my whole body depending on how i'm laying but anyways uh that's probably getting too uh minute um the other thing i did uh this week uh well actually a couple weeks ago i uh, as i mentioned on this podcast i am on a weird diet called the keto diet which means i am eating a lot of fat and a lot of protein but not a lot of car you know very little amount of carbs um i that usually means that i'm eating a lot of fatty meat and uh, I, one of my friends that's also on this diet subscribed to this service called ButcherBox, which I'm not sure if you guys heard of. But it's basically like this uh, – one of the subscription boxes. It comes every month. And uh, I got my first package of meat. It's literally like a box filled with dry ice and lots of meat. It's like Chris's worst nightmare. And <laughs> um, I got to say I'm really enjoying this as a carnivore. And as a person who is uh, continuing to lose the weight on this uh, this diet, uh, it, it is weird to receive this cardboard box filled with just like slices of meat. Uh, but um, serial killer ish. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but and I'm not even sure. I like you get a better deal on it than you would if you went to like Costco or something. But like the the. The selections of meat have all been amazing. Uh, you know, it saves me the the time to go to the grocery store and, you know, drag it home. Which, by the way, I, I, I hate to put Ben on the spot here. But, uh, yes. ben, ben, last week you talked about joining Amazon Fresh. Yes. And then I saw this Instagram story from your wife. That said something like you had ordered two peppers and they delivered. 
<laughs> yeah, so she said uh, she, she ended up making hot sauce because we had ordered serrano peppers uh, to make chili, and the smallest amount that you could order cost like 87 cents or something. I think it was, I'm pretty sure it was less than a dollar uh, just for Serrano peppers. And it was like, it, we weren't sure exactly how many were, were going to come, but we we're like, we only need a couple for this chili. And so we used three for the chili and there were 20 delivered in total. So she used <laughs> the remaining 17 to make uh, the hot sauce that is very, very hot, but very good. Um, so yeah, that, that's what that's what happened there. So how how are you liking Amazon Fresh so far? I mean, it's I, I thought it was going to be a bigger disaster, but that sounds like you spent very little with uh, oh, yeah. big results right there. Yeah, we're just you know I think she was looking for a way to avoid just throwing out the ones that we didn't need and just made hot sauce even though we didn't even really need it for anything. But I guess it it stays good in the in the fridge for like months on end. So we're, we now we got some hot sauce, guys. If anybody <laughs> wants some, I can, I can ship it out to you or something. But yeah. Uh, yeah, it's it's going pretty great so far. I mean, we've only had it for yeah like just over a week at this point, and I think we've already used it three times. Um, my same complaints are from the original time. I talk about it stand where like the selection is not it doesn't have everything that we always get but the convenience aspect of it is is really great so far very cool um so you'd recommend that so far and I would also recommend butcher box I'll put a link to that in the show notes if in case you're wondering what that is uh you can get some free bacon if you sign up right now um anyways uh HT what have you been up to so I got to cover the Aquaman press junket in New York. And for those who don't know, a press junket is something that is with the press tour that includes the cast and director in which they do interviews and a press conference to promote the film. Um, it doesn't come out till later in the month, but so we got to see them a little early and see a screening early, which I'll talk about later. But at the press conference, we, we got to see James Wan, Jason Moa, Amber Heard, and Patrick Wilson uh, speak about the film and the making of the film. And we also got to witness Jason Moa uh, seeing his Madame Tussauds wax mannequin for the first time. And it was a hilarious experience because he had never seen it before. And he just walks up and like there's a sparkle in his eyes <laughs> just seeing like this Aquaman figure that looks very uncannily like him. It's it's bizarre how like how accurate it is. And he, you know, he posed with it. I think he posted a few pictures on his Instagram of him posing with it. He liked it a lot. So he was just he kept talking about it. And um so that was that was a really cool um experience. And uh, I have a write up that uh, I posted that went up this morning actually. What was this your first press junket that you've ever been to? Um yes. Yes. I guess. Well, I've been to like a few. I went to like a when I did that Coco. Um, oh yeah, sort of yeah. Early you got day flown thing. Out. So that yeah, that was sort of a press junket thing. So this is like I guess the first. This is my first in New York. It was very exciting. So and like they had a really cool setup there too. Not only did they have like the mannequin that you could pose with with your own little trident, they had a little area that where you could take a video and be in your own Aquaman trailer, which I took and showed to the slash on Slack, and no one else, no one else can see it. I haven't even sent it oh, to my friends. So <laughs> why not? It's hilarious. It's really bad. I I was like I'm doing one cheesy thing for the day, and that's it. So we'll see. You might get unearthed one day. Um, and then like they had all these cool props and um, just items from and, and costumes from the movie as well, as well as a bunch of people who were dressed up as Atlanteans who they kind of paraded around before the press conference started, which was really interesting. But it was a it was a cool press junket. And I enjoyed, um, you know, just like 
talking and uh, hearing what went into the film and uh, seeing how Jason Momoa is in person, which is basically like how you see him in Aquaman. He's just this bro who <laughs> was wearing like torn up khakis at this conference while Amber Heard was dressed in like this tailored suit. It was very funny, but they were all very cool. And I, I enjoyed um, the experience of it. When can we expect your interviews from this press day on the site? So the interviews will be going up uh, on the week of the movie's release, but the write-up for the press conference is up online now. And and you also ran into Mary Poppins on the way out of the press conference. I heard. Yeah, I I did not I did not know like any official thing was happening, but I saw Emily Blunt um, at like the elevator for at the same hotel where this Aquaman junket was happening. Like, oh, that's weird. Maybe she's here, you know, with John Krasinski because, like, they live in New York. Um, so I didn't really think of it. But then a little bit later, I saw Ben Wishaw, who is also in Mary Poppins Returns. And I was like, oh, they must be having a conference or junket here at the same time as well. And I accidentally locked eyes with Ben Wishaw. So that was a cool <laughs> moment. He knows who you are. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> Brad, what have you been up to? I'm still in Utah, um, but I'm going back tomorrow, and my girlfriend's birthday was this past weekend, so we had a little bit of fun with uh, her friends and family to celebrate, and on Saturday, that involved going to this cool place uh, that no one really had actually been to before, even though everyone else who is around for her birthday lives here. Uh, it's this place called Top Golf. Oh, I've I'm... heard of that. That's like a chain. Uh, yeah. One of the one of the uh, YouTubers I follow, Tim Tracker, always goes to the one in Orlando. It looks amazing. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And I, I'm not somebody who really uh, likes golf very much. I, I'm I'm not very good at it. Um, I, I don't mind going to a driving range, like you know, every now and then. But it's been years since I've picked up a golf club uh, and actually hit any balls. But um, this place looks looked really cool because it, it's a driving range, but it's one of those multi-level driving ranges. But there's some added fun to it because out in the middle of the driving range where you're hitting your balls are these big targets that you are you know trying to aim for which is really difficult if you're not very good at golf at all. But what's cool is that, I mean, it, it's such a big area, and like even if you hit your balls haphazardly, the targets are so big that there's a good chance that your ball is going to end up rolling into one of them anyway. And what's cool is they have this whole uh, high-tech system in place where every single ball you hit is tracked by their system so that they know exactly where it goes and where it lands in the target, and it keeps track of your points for you in this on this, like, computer screen, um, these big TV monitors that they have at the the bays where you and your group are, are set up. And even though it's actually really cold here in Utah right now, because this is an outdoor thing, um, they have such a, such a great heating system at these bays that it didn't feel chilly at all. It was in like um, the, the mid-30s, and we had our jackets off, and um, we were hitting balls, and we didn't feel cold at all. So it's a really cool place to go. It's really fun. Everyone enjoyed it. And these are all people who aren't necessarily, you know, great golfers or anything. It's just kind of a fun way to pass the time. And it's something really unique because there's not really anything else uh, like it except for, you know, what Top top Golf does. So it was really fun. Well, I, I would like to check that out sometime, uh, maybe when I'm in Florida next. Um, they have them in Austin. Come down to Austin, Peter. They have them in Austin, too? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's impossible to have, to have, like, been to a social function in Austin without being the Top Golf at least once. Everybody does Top Golf in Austin. They have one in Jacksonville, Florida, which is where my parents are. And I think my mom was talking about trying to get our family together and, and take us uh, to go check one out for the first time when I go back to visit them later this month. So maybe I'll have my own uh, <laughs> uh, recap scenario on a future edition of the water cooler. 
I've also seen at these tough golf places they have like crazy food. Brad, did you have any, consume any crazy food there? I know I'm jumping ahead, but I, I don't think I saw anything in what you've been eating from Top Golf. No, 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 we didn't. We didn't have anything crazy. We did get a couple appetizers that were pretty good. I guess one thing you could say was kind of crazy, but not not really. Um, we we did the, this plate of it's an appetizer plate, and it comes with this huge pretzel. But then inside uh, each of the the, the holes that um, are, are between the pretzel um, bread, essentially, is was like a charcuterie of cheese and and meats and stuff like that. So that was that was pretty good. And the the pretzel was big. Um, and the assembly of you know the different food inside of the uh, the pretzel space itself was was pretty tasty. But otherwise, we didn't have anything like outlandish or anything. I actually didn't even get a chance to look at the menu. My girlfriend actually just picked a couple appetizers. Um, that everyone just was able to to eat while we were playing. Damn, why is land in LA so expensive and why can't we have a top golf in LA? Not that I'm even a golfer or a physical person of any kind, but for some reason this looks like a lot of fun. Uh let's move on to what we've been reading. Uh Jacob, uh I, I you also got the book that I got uh for my birthday this year, uh Stranger Things Worlds Turned Upside Down. What do you think of it? Yeah, I'm not as big of a Stranger Things fan as you are, Peter. I like yeah. the show quite a bit. Um, I, I think I admire it more than I love it. Uh, but this book, like, it's saying to me from the shelf. I'm already a fan of the, of lavish, you know, slightly too large making of books um, for, like, film and television. And this one really leans into the Stranger Things aesthetic because it is made to look like a used book from the 80s. It's been through better days. The cover is intentionally torn and worn. Everything is scratched. It's it's been encased in uh, plastic wrap to prote- for protection in quotation marks. It has a used book like fair condition war- sticker on the cover of it, so it looks like an artifact. It looks like something that's, that was written in the '80s and exists in the '80s and has not been always taken care of very well, uh, even though it's all intentional and the book is brand new and it's a really, really cool thing. I'm just impressed by the aesthetics of it. Just holding it and admiring it from that perspective was just a very cool thing and as someone who as you saw from the photos that we posted um in the show notes of my book collection i like books i like (laughs) unique books that will anybody can pull down and admire and flip through and the best thing about a book like this is that yeah you can pull it down admire it and look through it you can open a random page of this book and find some cool stranger things trivia It's, it's pretty much a look at the making of the first two seasons there's commentary on every aspect of the show's production it's not as in depth as other books that I've seen. It doesn't break down every single episode in, in like incredible detail like other books I've I've seen for TV shows have. Uh, but if you're a fan of Stranger Things and you want to know more, or you just like cool books about production of film and television, it's a very nifty thing. I am I am I'm definitely won over by what they did here. And if they do one for seasons three and four in a similar fashion, like they do for Game of Thrones, Game of Thrones releases a, a new like making of art book every two seasons, uh, then I'll definitely pick up the Stranger Things uh, volume two, <laughs> a version of this book. Uh, what do you think, Peter? I think you probably read more than I have. I, I've sort of just skimmed it a little bit. I've only just skimmed it too. It's like one of those good coffee table books where you, you it, what you said, you just kind of like skim to a certain page. Uh, I I love the design of this thing, like the back of the. Uh, even the dust jacket has like scribblings from the kids, like a drawing, and like there's things to find and explore. And uh, but I feel like the content is more surface level than I would have liked. Um, but uh, from a design perspective, I just love it. Um, there's like a whole section on the the movies that inspired Stranger Things and the books of Stephen King that inspired Stranger Things. Which the the layout of those pages are just like I don't know. It, it's I, I wish 
we could get more things on movies and TV presented in that kind of visual glory. Um, but uh, yeah, I've not read too far into it, so I can't give a full review. Um, let's move on to what we've been watching because I think we've all been watching a lot of stuff. Uh, I attended the world premiere of Mary Poppins Returns. I talked about that on the last uh, last week's podcast. I was very disappointed in this film. I think it's just not for me. I know most people are probably gonna enjoy it, but I found it kind of boring. Um, and uh, you know, and that's in the you know the context of seeing a film at a world premiere where everybody is excited, everybody's dressed up, you know. It, all you know, you have the best laughter. You have claps throughout the film. Um, to dislike a film in those kind of settings, almost uh, almost like you know, film festival premiere uh, level settings, uh, is very hard. <laughs> but but I, I, it, but this movie accomplished it for me. So um, you know what, guys, I I am sad to admit I went to my Letterboxed profile and I did a count of how many movies I've seen this year. And I'm embarrassed of this number, but I'm about to reveal this number to the world. I know this number is going to probably discredit me in some ways, but I've only seen 50 movies this year. 50 uh, 2018 releases this year, I should say. Um, And looking at that, and I was talking in the Slack channel, and I think, Chris, how many movies have you seen this year of 2018 releases? Uh, a lot. I already forgot what it was. It's, it's something like it's close to three hundred. <laughs> like I don't know. I maybe it's the fact that you know I went to Sundance this year and got sent home before the festival started. And usually, you know, I end up seeing like you know fifteen twenty movies there. Uh, maybe it's uh you know this year uh was my first year as a member of the Magic Castle, so maybe I've been spending time there rather than in movies. Maybe I've been watching more TV shows. Than movies this year because TV's so good, but I just I I'm so disappointed in myself that I have not seen that many movies. So I I've been made it a goal for myself in December to try to catch up as much as I can. So uh, one month through is a bunch of stuff I watched over the weekend, uh, starting with Paddington Two, which I know I've been. Uh, Delayed on that. I, I had watched Paddington 1 a while back, but Paddington 2 was not available for free or for, you know, for on one of the services that I pay for until recently. It's been recently on HBO, I believe. And uh, the, the film is just as delightful and as great as, you know, all of you said it was. So, you know, I have nothing to add there. Uh, I saw Roma, um, which is the Alfonso Cuaron Netflix movie. Um, I saw it exactly how he wanted it to be presented. I saw it uh, projected from a DVD screener on my 150-inch uh, projector screen, which looked awful. And I was regretting every moment of it because this film is such a beautiful uh, shot movie. Like, the cinematography is just just so great. Uh, wonderful long shots, uh, long pans and side dollies and... And uh, the story, you know, you know, hit me emotionally. It's great. I don't think maybe it's uh, in my top five of the year, but it's probably in my top ten. It's up there. It's uh, I would recommend it to anybody. Uh, It's a film you should see. Um, 
if you can see it on the big screen, unlike me, uh, you know, I think it's projecting in 70 millimeter in some of the big cities. So uh, do that if you can. I also saw a screener of Vice, um, and I largely agree with what Chris had to say about this film. It's infuriating. Uh, it's uh, I think it actually might be one of my favorite. It might be my favorite of McKay's uh, political films. Uh, it's uh, I love his comedy touches on it. Um, I love the conceit of the narrator. Um, and there's some clever things he does uh, within the film. Uh, it's it's such a it. I I know the same thing could be said of maybe uh, the Mister Rogers documentary, but like watching this, like it's amazing to see what kind of impact one person can have on this world. And uh, in you know this would be in the opposite of Mister Rogers uh, in, in the negative way. Uh, it's uh, has one of the best end credit scenes ever, I think. And um, I did like Christian Bale as as uh, as the lead character. I did not like Samuel Rockwell or Sam Rockwell as uh, W. Chris, did you like him as W? I know he's getting a lot of award buzz. Uh, I thought he was great. I mean, he's not in it as much as you might think he would be, but I yeah. thought he did a good job. Uh, yeah, I thought he was fine. Yeah. Um, I also finally caught Minding the Gap. This is a film that uh, I lost the summer movie wager this year on uh, this last filmcast. And this is the film that David Chen wanted everybody to watch. And this film is a documentary. It's um, It follows... How did you describe this? Okay, so the director, Bing Liu, um, he shot his friend's uh, skateboarding videos with his friends, and he basically has returned. He has all this footage over the years of his friends, and he's returned to kind of catch up with what's going on with his friends now that they are becoming adults. And because of his friendship with these people, he is allowed such intimate... um, you know, uh, access to their lives and, um, such a very personal conversation of not even just his friends, but even him and his mom's relationship. Uh, I honestly, I think this is one of my favorite movies this year. I would, uh, I would highly recommend seeing a double feature of, uh, mid nineties, the Jonah Hill film. And then, and then Mind the Gap, which I do think Mind the Gap probably is a little bit better. But um, I think that's a good second part for a double feature with those two films. And uh, what else did I watch? I watched another documentary called Shirkers. This one is on Netflix, so you can actually watch this now on Netflix. Uh, oh, and uh, Minding the Gap, I believe, is on Hulu. Uh, so Shirkers is on Netflix, and Shirkers is... This documentary by Sandy Tan won the Documentary Director's Award at Sundance Film Festival for this movie. Uh, When she was younger, uh, two decades ago, she shot a feature film in uh, Singapore. uh, And she shot it with this film teacher. And uh, after shooting this feature film, the footage mysteriously went missing, as did the film teacher that uh, that directed the film with her 
And uh, for two decades, she she didn't know what had happened. It's kind of like this is kind of a detective story about filmmaking. It's a, a snapshot of Singapore two decades ago. It's um, I don't know. It's about the. I don't know. It's hard to uh, say what this is about without spoiling it. But uh, you know, I would highly recommend it. It's kind of um. It's so creatively presented. Uh, you can see why she won the Sundance Award. It's just, uh, yeah, I, I, I highly recommend that as well. Um, and lastly, I went to the theater to see Bohemian Rhapsody, which I know has been uh, critically savaged. Uh, it seems like mainstream America seems to like this movie a lot more than critics. Um this movie is kind of a paint-by-numbers musical biopic of Freddie Mercury. Uh, it's everything you think it's going to be, and it uh, doesn't do anything really inventive, isn't particularly introspective. Uh, it, um, you know, it's full of those moments of, like, oh, the audience is in on it. Like, you know, executives arguing over if Bohemian Rhapsody, the song, is too long to become a number one single. And, you know, the whole audience is, like, laughing at that. And uh, it's not, you know, I am a big fan of Queen's music. I didn't really know much about the people in Queen themselves and their story. So this was, I did learn a lot from this, but I don't feel like I learned that much. That said, I know that sounds like a bad review. Um, That said... Uh, this was such an enjoyable movie. I don't know. It, maybe it's that, uh, you know, it has all the songs we love and it's, uh, it's, uh, I don't know. It's, um, it's hard to describe why I like it because it, honestly, like me saying everything I just said about the movie, it seems like I should not like the movie. It's not like it's an exceptional movie of any kind. It is not, but I, I do think critics are being maybe a little too hard on it and uh i don't know that's exactly what i said when i saw it back when it first came out is that it's i I don't think it's terrible by any means it's definitely cliche and it's full of biopic tropes and sure it could have been better but i had a lot of fun watching it it's it's a very entertaining uh you know movie and you know it's it could have been deeper and better absolutely but yeah i I had fun watching it too yeah and, and i almost feel bad because you know obviously it's directed by brian singer um, the film does weirdly have like a bunch of cases where it's like attacking critics and journalists <laughs> in media. Um, so I'm wondering if that had anything to play into it other than it being kind of a cliche movie. Um, but I don't know. Uh, maybe I'm reaching too far. Uh, the last thing I wanted to talk about is there's this new Netflix series called Death by Magic, which is a new magic, uh, television show on Netflix. It's, um, Basically, the premise of this is the host, DMC, who's this magician, is going to places in the world where a magician died performing magic, be it a bullet catch, be it an escape on train tracks, uh, whatever. And he's attempting to recreate those tricks and uh, to honor those deaths in a great way. Uh, it's not good. So I, maybe you can avoid it. Um, I'm probably going to have to watch it. Gonna have to hate watch it because I I like magic and I want to, you know. There's some good in it. Like he's a good magician, but it's just uh, I don't know. Maybe it's like overly produced and it's just it's not great. So I, I wouldn't recommend any of you watch this series, Death by Magic. I, I would say watch um 
the Justin Willman uh, Magic for Humans show on uh, Netflix instead. I think that's a much more enjoyable series. Uh, Jacob, what have you been watching? I'll start off by talking about the movie that I I thought would be homework. <laughs> it wasn't. And I felt so happy to enjoy it as much as I did. And that is The Favorite, the new film by Yorgos Lanthimos, the director of Dogtooth and the Lobster. And I don't know why I thought this was going to be like a tough sit because I really like his previous movies. It just that at, at a glance, it looks like a costume drama. Uh, and I'm not always big on, you know, those 18th century people in palaces um, having relationships movies, except this is the ultimate version of people in, in a palace having relationships, uh, except that it treats the Royal court of Queen Anne of England as if it was the worst possible high school. This movie is Mean Girls, except everybody who's every mean girl uh, has political power and is affecting the course of a nation. It is such a uh, bitchy, mean, dark, cruel little movie where the characters are all so mean to each other, and it's while being so funny. And the way the movie the movie is about uh, Queen Anne, played by a really spectacular Olivia Coleman, uh, she's not very effective as a ruler. She lets uh, Sarah, uh, played by Rachel Weiss, her second command, essentially make all of her decisions for her. And then uh, Sarah's cousin, uh, Abigail, played by uh, Emma Stone, shows up, gets a job in the palace, and they both start competing for the affections of Anne and both start trying to be her favorite, so to speak. And things spiral to dark, funny, tragic places. And... While it's rooted in history, it also makes some suggestions based on what people think may have been a case between these three women and what may or may not be true. But it doesn't matter because it emotionally it all makes sense. And I can't wait to see it again because there are certain acts of cruelty that's that in retrospect are actual kind, actually kindness. And there are acts of kindness that in retrospect are actually cruelty. And seeing who feels what at what point and who's being honest with each other, is, it's like a puzzle. You're trying to figure out who actually cares about who and who is trying to step ahead of each other and Lanthimos is such a uh, bleak filmmaker he does not believe in human beings he does not believe in relationships he does not believe in our capacity to do good so the favorite is very much a bleak dark sitting and it ends in a way that will leave a lot of people frustrated uh, because he does not want to wrap things up in a tidy bow but I was enraptured by this movie it is so beautiful to look at and the, the divisiveness between how much it looks like a costume drama, like a typical costume drama with these lavish sets and lavish costumes with the characters saying the crudest, cruelest, funniest, and meanest things possible. I, I was, I was laughing and gasping throughout the whole thing. I had such a great time with the favorite. It's, it's a lock for my best of the year list. Has anybody else seen this movie? Cause I was, I was blown away by how much I liked it. No, but I'm really looking forward to seeing it. I think I'm going to see it sometime this week. Yeah, Dan, I think of all the slash film staff, uh, HG, you're the one I think you're is going to like really I'm so get excited for it. <laughs> I love the lobster and I love period dramas. So, see, I hate period dramas, but Jacob is making me want to watch this movie, and I have a feeling I'm not going to like it. But <sighs> should I do it, Jacob? <laughs> I, I'm very curious, Peter, because like I said, it, it's it's very much a comedy, and it's very very. It's dark comedy. So and it's, it's using costume tro- uh, drama tropes in ways you don't expect. Like there are uh, – like for example, Nicholas Holt's character who is um, also spectacular in this even though the movie is very much about the three female leads who are wonderful and amazing. But Nicholas Holt um, plays this uh, 
a Tory politician who's always at Queen Anne's court and always trying to push his agendas. And he look he's like in this extremely lavish costume with lavish makeup. Uh, but the movie makes him almost too lavish in his presentation. He reaches a point where the movie's aware of how ridiculous he looks at all times. And um, starts to push that to the point where he starts realizing that the movie's very aware of how outlandish and preposterous and silly all these costumes are and how his outfits are. And Nicholas Holt really leans into it playing this um, essentially the the high school jock of this royal court high school. And he's such a dick. <laughs> he has a scene with Emma Stone where they take a walk and he berates her in ways that are just still rattling around my brain. Uh, so, yeah, Peter, give it a shot. I, I, I think you may... If you've ever, ever had a bad high school experience, you, you'll relate to the favorite, <laughs> I think. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm going to have to check this out then. Uh, what else have you been watching, Jacob? Oh, because it's because it's Christmas time, my wife and I watched uh, the Great British Baking Show Christmas Special, or Great British Baking Show Holidays, I think it's called on Netflix. And these are just uh, two one-off specials where they reunite various cast members from past seasons for single episode competitions where they make Christmas themed goods. And you know what? It's more great British baking show. It is totally fine. It is sweet and nice. And it's fun to see some familiar faces back. It's not as good as the main series because there's not as much suspense. There's not, we don't spend 10 episodes, you know, learning who each of these people are and watching them grow and change. But as far as two hours to kill in December, where you just want to, be around nice people being nice and making nice things for two hours. I, I recommend it highly. I know Chris also watched this. Chris, uh, what do you think about the holiday version of Great British Baking Show? It was uh, it was great. My only complaint is that there weren't more episodes. My wife and I watched this, uh, I think it was Friday night, and it was over. We just, you know, wanted more, and that was impossible. But, you know, it, some is better than none, so we'll, we'll take what we can get. Uh, l- speaking of, l- l- let me guess. They make cookies and call them biscuits. <laughs> oh, I don't Peter! On this episode, these episodes, they do that on other episodes, but not, but not this not one. Okay. <laughs> We're gonna get you to watch this show yet, Peter. It's gonna calm your nerves. I think Peter's anti-British food bias might be too much for this. <laughs> I've just had so much bad British food while visiting London for set visit. Oh no! I also don't like British baked goods, so maybe I don't know. Yeah, maybe maybe I'm just biased. I'm too, I'm too biased to, to enjoy the show, Jacob. Uh, well, Peter, then you're lost. You're missing one of one of pop culture's greatest treasures. <laughs> what else have you been watching? Well, to keep the Christmas train going, I watched uh, Saint, 2010 um, Dutch horror movie, um, or it's called Sint, I believe, is the actual European title. It's streaming on Hulu right now, and it's another in the long line of killer Santa Claus movies. Um, it's no Rare Exports, right away. Rare Exports is the best killer Santa movie of all time, uh, and it won't be topped ever. But uh, Saint is okay, and I'm, I mostly like it because it's very much grounded in uh, regional traditions. It's very much like I'm watching this movie going, why are they doing that? What's going on? And we had to pause the movie and Google a few things because the traditions on display uh, in this movie are so different than American holiday traditions that I was like just confused at first. But I actually lent it this very specific flavor that I enjoyed uh, more than some of the other movies, ac- movies, actual horror beats is it kind of runs out of steam. It's back half. I mean, it's, it's a little bit familiar. Killer Santa Claus returns army of servants, exact revenge upon uh, bad people, young and old. And it has some really good moments. And like I said, the cultural specificity of it is a lot of fun. Uh, but I just feel like there are such better and more satisfying 
movies about, you know, hey, Santa Claus is actually uh, real and he actually does harm. I think Rare Exports and Krampus from a few years ago are both far better films. Uh, but, you know, for an 85-minute movie streaming on Hulu, that's totally watchable. Uh, Sint or Saint is perfectly fine. Uh, Chris, have you seen this? Because I feel like you and I are the, are the big horror guys here. I have seen this. It's uh, it's not good. <laughs> I, uh, I don't even remember really what. I just remember I did watch it one year around the holidays, and I can barely recall what happened in it. So f- for me to not remember like a single thing is is a bad sign. All I just know I watched it. <laughs> well, to complete my Christmas trilogy, I watched and or sorry, I watched half of because I did not finish the Christmas Chronicles, the Kurt Russell as Santa Claus family adventure movie that Netflix made. It is garbage. It is a very bad movie. It feels like it was made for Hallmark. And Kurt Russell, uh, bless his heart, is doing everything he can as this really tough, kind of cool, blue-collar Santa who um, I really like this depiction of Santa Claus where he's less of an all-knowing, mystical, winking being and more of a uh, down-to-earth working man who has access to magic. And that's a really, really cool take. But he's surrounded by these really terrible child actors, and the plot is they mess up his sleigh while trying to film trying to film Santa, and they have to save Christmas. And I just, it it really feels like a, a really bad TV movie starring Kurt Russell, and and his Netflix is on it, and because it stars Kurt Russell, people are going to watch this a lot more often than they would have if it had premiered on Hallmark or one of the other channels. But that's where it belongs. I mean, I was really, I was. Halfway through, I just turned my wife and said, can we turn this off? I'm done with this. And we did. Uh, but Chris, what do you think? I know you watched this too. Uh, yeah, it's it's not great. Um, Kurt Russell, I think Kurt Russell makes it worth watching alone just because he's, he's clearly having fun and he looks really cool as Santa Claus for some reason. Like, I don't know how that happened, but he looks like a really cool Santa. So that makes it kind of worth watching. But I actually kind of liked it for the reasons you're listing because it, it it's so <laughs> bad that like there's this young girl and she's clearly way too old for what her character is supposed to be. Like she still believes in Santa, but you can tell this actress is probably like 16, but she's playing someone much younger. And it really shows because she overdoes everything. So I kind of just had fun watching how like terrible it was. So uh, I don't want to go far so far as to say it's so bad. It's good because it's not, but I found it at least partially watchable like it didn't make me like want to throw something at the tv so that's a plus i guess <laughs> uh and finally i saw suspiria again before it left theaters because that movie is incredible and seeing it again confirmed that it is incredible and i feel like most people are gonna find this movie on amazon prime where it's gonna live forever and watching at home is gonna be fine but seeing in theaters surrounded by people was it was for me the way to see this movie because being in a being in an audience of people trying to figure out what is going on <laughs> as they watch Asperia is part of the fun. But second viewing really does unlock the movie's mysteries, what it's unlock, what it's about. I feel like I can really talk about it now. If we ever want to have a, a conversation about Asperia on this podcast, I'm equipped to do it now, which I wasn't mm-hmm. after my first viewing. I was, second time through, you're less overwhelmed by it and less um, thrown off by um, the speed at which it does not... It's it, it, a movie I managed to be extremely fast in that... It is running through information very quickly, but very slow in that it's paced deliberately. So it's a very, very odd combination of things, and you're just trying to grapple with it your first time through. But second time through, it clicked in a way that I knew I liked it the first time I watched it, and I liked it again. It's 
it's very unfortunate that Suspiria opened the same year as Mandy because otherwise it would be my number one movie of 2018. Uh, but yeah, my num- number one and two, my second favorite movie of the year, right behind Mandy. Wow. rest of my list right now is toss-up, but those two are locked in. Well, Suspiria and The Favorite you can see in theaters right now, The, the Great British Baking Show Holiday and uh, The Christmas Chronicles on Netflix and Saint, you said on Hulu? Uh, it is on Hulu. Yes. Uh, Chris, uh, what have you been watching? Uh, well, other than the stuff that we already talked about, I saw uh, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. There was a screening of it for me uh, over the weekend, and uh, my review is up now on SlashFilm.com, and I encourage everyone to go read it and write, Chris, you're the best in the comment section. <laughs> but uh, I-, I loved it. Um it really does live up to the hype. Uh, I don't want to say I went into this movie uh, expecting the worst because I don't go into any movie that way. I, I always hope for every movie I'm seeing to be good. But even with all the buzz, I was like, all right, there's no way this movie is that good. And it really is. It really is that good. And this is like, if you're like me where you don't mind superhero movies, but you're kind of burned out on them and you're you're kind of thinking like, oh, enough this is going to rekindle your faith in that medium because this film does what other superhero movies aren't is they're not doing what this movie is doing and this movie's having uh, fun with things it's it's uh, using its its medium in ways other films can't like the fact that it's animated allows it to do all these things that live action movies can't and uh, it's just, it's, it's a blast. It's, it's so much fun. It's so entertaining. It's, it's incredibly funny. Uh, I know it sounds like I'm overselling it, but this movie really is as good as everyone is saying. So, uh, I, I highly recommend Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. You called it the best superhero movie this year. Absolutely. It's better than everything else that came out. I mean, Black Panther was great, but this is better. Infinity War was fine. Uh, Ant-Man I already forgot I saw so I, I don't really care about that but this this is hands down the best superhero movie of the year in my opinion I, I think this will actually be in my top five films of this year period so uh, uh, Ben you also saw this movie I did and it is also pr- almost certainly going to be in my top five I loved it I want to echo everything Chris just said I think it's probably the best Spider-Man story that has ever been put on film thus far and I know for a lot of people that's going to be a high bar with like Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 2 being up there as like one of the best Spider-Man movies for a lot of people for a long long time and this is better than that this is it, it does things like Chris was saying with animation that you've never seen before it does things with the story of Spider-Man that you've never seen before it it really like leans into it, it's really great because it's it's one of those things where if you know a ton about Spider-Man, you're going to love it. But even if you don't, I feel like it gives you enough information to, you know, if you've never seen, basically what I'm trying to say is you only have to have a baseline knowledge of Spider-Man to really appreciate what this movie is doing. And I think everybody has that baseline knowledge just through pop culture osmosis. Like, it's not like you have to, you know, some of the later Marvel movies it almost feels like homework that you have to see the 17 movies that came before it or whatever. And this is not like that at all. It, it feels fresh and it's hilarious. That's one of the things that I think, I mean, it's one of the funniest movies this year I've, I've found. Uh, man, this movie is so great. I, I have a bunch of interviews coming 
uh, in the next few weeks from the directors and from Phil Lord and Chris Miller, who are the the writer producers on it. And uh, I can't wait for you guys to read this stuff because um, this movie is amazing. I really want everybody to see it. And um, yeah, it's it's definitely one of the best films, period, in 2018. Yeah. Who's going to be the first person on Slash Film staff that doesn't love this movie? I hope it's somebody like completely unexpected, like Brad. It's just like, nope, this movie's garbage. I don't know. HT. <laughs> uh, I'm so sad if I don't like that movie. <laughs> <laughs> you're you're gonna love it. I I I can't imagine any of you guys are gonna, gonna dislike this movie. I don't think I've talked to one person that disliked this movie. Um, HT, what have you been watching this past week? You finally saw Aquaman. I did. I saw a screening of it ahead of the press junket I attended. And <laughs> she I finally <laughs> saw a movie that doesn't come out for like three weeks. <laughs> you finally saw it, Peter. Uh, we're finally catching up with you. Whatever, Mr. Yeah. Important. I live in L.A. and go to fancy screenings. <laughs> um, but yeah, I saw it. I also thought it was a blast. So um, it does is not quite on the level of Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. I don't think it will be, but it is a wildly entertaining movie that I didn't anticipate having so much fun at. I think it definitely um, is because this everyone in this movie is just having a ball. Jason Moa is just having a great time, and no one not, this movie doesn't take itself too seriously at all. In fact, it's almost overwhelmingly sincere to the point that <laughs> it becomes like almost self-parody at some points. It's... Everything is on the nose, the dialogue, the music cues, the acting, and it's just something that feels sort of like a throwback. I know, Peter, you said it kind of felt like a Marvel Phase 1 movie, but it felt yeah. to me almost like... As and not in a bad way. Not in a bad way, yeah. It almost felt to me like an early 2000s like Sam Raimi movie in the way that it was so sincere and just so like, you know, it played everything straight and wasn't so, so like tongue-in-cheek, apart from like maybe some of the, the toilet joke, which was kind of weird. But um, I really enjoyed it, and uh, I thought Jason Moa's in particular was just so, was just so fun to watch. Um, it had some pacing problems, and it definitely had some issues with some of the world-building that were – in those parts felt like it dragged a little bit, but otherwise I was, I thought it was a great film, a great superhero film and um, surprisingly had great visuals as well. Uh, despite some of the, um, the sort of sketchy visuals you've seen in the trailers, uh, James Wan does a great job of just like rendering this underworld, uh, underwater world uh, to life. And there are some moments that he kind of, taps into his like horror aficionados that make for some really spectacular sequences so um i i like aquaman a lot and um i think that if you are not looking forward to it you might be pleasantly surprised to see it yeah that underwater world looks like like avatar meets tron legacy with like the space battles of star wars it's like insane. It's it, like it's very ambitious what he's doing with that film. Uh, you also saw Creed two. Yes, uh, so that's a movie I finally saw. Catching up on that, and um, it's fine. It's a solid Rocky sequel, but I feel like Ryan Coogler's absence is keenly felt. Um, the there's no there's not a lot of that electricity that I felt from the first Creed, and um, especially not even in parts in Michael B. Jordan's performance, who I feel like when he teams with teams up with Ryan Coogler just has this 
electricity and this like power to his performance. And here he was good. And this movie went in some really interesting places in how it delved into like masculinity and performative masculinity, especially pertaining to like black men in a sport where that is like very overwhelmingly aggressive. But I just didn't really feel myself like emotionally connecting to it as much as I did with the first Creed. And I think the montages too had something lacking as well. Um, I didn't feel like that kind of that empowering um, emotion whenever the montages um, kicked in, except for at the end when the Dragos had their um, their emotional like the catharsis. I found myself identifying a, identifying a lot more with the Dragos than I thought I would, and I love them, and they're my favorite part of this film. So, <laughs> um, while Michael B. Jordan's great, I will say the Dragos really stole the film yeah, for, for I'm me. I'm telling you, they should have made the Drago movie instead. Take that, Brad. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, False, false. <laughs> uh, what else have you been watching, HD? Um, so I got the chance to see Burning, which is a movie I've been really looking forward to ever since uh, it kind of made a splash at uh, the Cannes Film Festival earlier this year. And that's a film by Lee Chang Dong, and it stars Steven Yun and um, Yu Ah In and John Jung So. And it's a Korean film uh, based off of a Haruki Murakami short story. It's about a um, a young man who's unemployed and is kind of a little mild mannered, not and kind of aimless in life. Who runs into this girl who tells him that she uh, grew up next to him, but he doesn't re- remember her at all. But after you know, like they strike up an affair, he becomes obsessed with her, and immediately she leaves for like a vac- a trip to Africa. And um, but when she comes back, she has she's in the arms of a rich sort of playboy played by Steven Yun, uh, who is phenomenal in this film. He's very like he's plays like this like sociopathic. Um, hypnotic character really well and this is a film that um, I think is the best cinematic realization I've seen of a Haruki Murakami book in that you're not really sure where it's going you're not really sure what's happening and you're not sure if like you trust what's happening on screen but you just love where it takes you it feels very lyrical and uh, hypnotic like I said before and um, it also has shades too of um, of Hitchcockian thriller especially vertigo in a lot of ways so uh it's but it's not really like a thriller either it's so slow burning pun not intended but i'll go with it um that it just um it it like slowly builds until like this paranoia like settles in with you and um you finally realize that like this actually is kind of a thriller and you've been unsettled this entire time so it's it's really good i i really enjoyed it i think chris already also saw it too um, at one of at TIFF, right? Yes, I did. It's it's so good. Uh, I actually just got a screener of it, and I can't wait to rewatch it soon. Oh, yeah, it's fa- it's fantastic. Yeah, th- th- this is one of those films that I have to catch up in this last month of the year and see. You know, n- not to derail this whole conversation, <laughs> but I wanted to ask you guys, like, how many movies do you think you need to see in a year to be actually considered like a film fanatic? Because I feel as, like I as mostly many movies used... as Christie's. Really? Uh, I, I, I feel like most years I see like 100 to 150. But this year it's been so, so like, uh, Jacob, what are, what are your thoughts on this matter? Like, how many movies, like, to, to be considered like a film nerd, how many movies do you need to see in a given year? 
I'm really hesitant to answer this because I have not counted my movies I've seen this year for this very reason. <laughs> I don't want to feel bad or feel, uh, or or if I'm doing that poorly or feel above somebody else. But I feel like, um, like two two a week is that a hundred? Maybe yeah, I'd, I'd say maybe a hundred is a baseline for like staying a part of the conversation. I feel like it's probably round. I'd say I'd say I'm probably hovering between one fifty and two hundred. If I had to guess, I have no idea. But I, I'd say like. Yeah, hundred feels like the um, you are you are staying on top of things number. Brad, any thoughts on this? I mean, it's you, when I used to keep a more solid track of like all the movies that I'd seen in a given year, including when I would see movies from a given year in a few the years that followed it. I my number usually ended up around like somewhere between one hundred and twenty and one hundred and fifty consistently. Yeah. Um. But like, so I don't, I don't know. I feel, I think a hundred's a good idea because that's, you're, I mean, at that point you're seeing basically two movies a week, um, you know, two new movies a week, and a lot of people don't have, you know, time for that, like, uh, or or make time for that, like we do. So I, I think, I think that's probably a, a fair number. Ht, any thoughts on this? I don't know either because I haven't <laughs> caught, kept track of the movies I've seen since like. July, I just kind of dropped off on Letterbox, and if, after I saw Leave No Trace, which I kind of like because it feels like that movie was so good, I just died afterwards, <laughs> and I saw no other movies. <laughs> but um, yeah, I guess the hundred number is a solid like uh, ballpark. I I would like to have over a hundred, um, just because there's so many movies that come out in a year, and uh, yeah, I, I feel like that's a good estimate. I use Letterbox and I rate the stuff on Letterbox just because at the end of the year I can it's easy to go back there and be like when I'm making my top ten list, um, you know, re-examine everything I've seen. Um, to, uh, ben, Chris, do you have any thought? I feel like no one has a strong feelings on how many movies you really need to see to well, be considered I feel like, like, it's like a gatekeeper type of thing. You know, you yeah. Just, yeah. Well, yeah. Gate, well I'm, I'm talking about like um, maybe in the okay, maybe I should reframe this in the sense of like we are writing about films and we are writing it about film from in a level of authority that we are seeing enough films that we know our shit, right? So like what? How many movies should we see a year to be at that level? Oh God, it's it's tough because I don't know. I keep worrying about sounding like a like a <laughs> gatekeeping. No matter what I say, I don't want to because I know there are people out there who are film fans and they are film fanatics and they just don't have the opportunity to see as many movies. And yeah. I don't want to tell that person like you're not a real film fan, man. So. <laughs> I, <laughs> Yeah, I think maybe it just comes down to uh, the way that you engage with the movies. Maybe it's not so much the uh, the quantity of movies that you see, but the quality of your engagement with them and the the way that you think about them and and uh, yeah, analyze them and and spend time you know thinking about stuff like that. Maybe maybe we shouldn't put a number on it, but just uh, <laughs> value the level of uh, intelligence that goes into thinking about a movie because that's something that can get lost in yeah. in the mix you know like if you see 500 movies this year if you just let them go in one year and out the other like who gives a shit at the end of the day you know 100 percent. okay we're gonna get back to ht uh, you, you've been re-watching a bunch of stuff too yeah so um ariana grande released her thank you next video on friday and it was an ode to all these uh early 2000s, uh, late 90s, bring it on with 
I don't know if the late 90s, 90s films that were formative for a lot of the millennials of this generation. And um, so movies like Bring It On, uh, 13 Going On 30, Legally Blonde, Mean Girls, um, all of those films. And they had like, she had little cameos from of actors from those films in her music video. And after watching that video, I got in the mood to want to, to watch uh, all of the movies in that video. Unfortunately, only Legally Blonde was available on streaming for like free. It's on the YouTube um, free movies, actually. I think we wrote about that on, on a while ago and it was, YouTube is offering a bunch of free films. So Legally Blonde is available f- for free on YouTube. Um, and I watched that and just like had so much fun rewatching it and just like drinking tons of wine on a Friday night. It's still such a great feminist movie and it's really ahead of its time, honestly, in the way that it depicts a woman played by Reese Witherspoon who, you know, goes, gets into Harvard to like follow a boy, but she does it of her own uh, smarts and her own brilliance and then, and realizes that she, you know, deserves, she deserves better and she is her own independent woman and stuff like that. It's, it's so empowering. And there's also like a little bit of a me too sort of, um, through like subplot in there too, where she gets like harassed by the professor. Which, if this was remade today, God, God, uh, <laughs> hope not. Um, it would have probably be focused on more, which would have been really interesting. So I enjoyed rewatching that and just drinking a lot of wine <laughs> while I was watching it. And so afterwards, I decided to wait, wait, watch before, more rom coms. <laughs> before that, I'm very curious. How is the experience of watching a movie on YouTube with ads? I actually didn't have ads. Oh, there was no ads. Okay. Yeah. I put it on my TV through the Chromecast and I didn't get any ads. Crazy. So, yeah. So, pro tip. Okay. Yeah. So, what Maybe other. Maybe I was drunk and I didn't tell, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> what other romantic comedies did you watch? Yeah. So, I followed it up with the uh, the Christmas Prince sequel from Netflix called The Christmas Prince, The Royal Wedding, which was a film I was ironically looking forward to and was I decided just to put it on because I was already like halfway through my wine bottle and uh, after watching like 10 minutes of it I realized I remembered nothing of the first film and I I think it was because I was also drunk while watching it the first time and um, fell asleep halfway through and the same thing happened with um, the Christmas Prince a royal the royal wedding because I just watched like maybe 20 minutes and was like this is fun and I just fell asleep <laughs> so that was my Friday night well, Creed 2 and Burning are in theaters now. Legally Blonde is apparently available on YouTube. The Christmas Prince, The Royal Wedding on Netflix, you said? Netflix. Netflix. And you can finally see Aquaman later this month. <laughs> uh, <laughs> finally. Yeah, finally. Brad, what have you been watching? Uh, I got around to seeing Ralph Breaks the Internet. And uh, I was pretty much pleased with it. Didn't love it as much as the first movie. But it, this one still is really funny. Has a lot of heart. Um, it, the depiction of the internet here, even though you know people had complained that it has a similar premise uh, as the Emoji Movie, this this does it infinitely better in a, in a much more clever way. Um, the animation in you know the six years since the first Wreck-It Ralph has you know progressed so much that like things look so much better than they did even in the first movie. Um, it's amazing how animation evolves in such a short time period like that. And yeah, it's um, I'm not sure that I like. I, I think like. Towards the end, it kind of loses its luster a little bit. I wasn't too much of a fan of the ending, but I do like the the central conceit of you know the relation, what happens with the relationship between Ralph and Vanellope. Um, it's it's it felt like a topic that really isn't usually covered 
in kids' movies. And I kind of like when, uh, you know, Disney or whoever goes outside of the box for these kinds of movies and tackles a subject that isn't so obvious and uh, isn't so easy to, you know, convey in movies like that. A lot of times they go for the easier uh, sell when it comes to positive themes and messages for kids. But I thought this one was a, a really good one. Um, and then I also got around to seeing Green Book, which um, I definitely I enjoyed uh, pretty well. The performances are fantastic, and Viggo Mortensen is f- great in it. Mahershala Ali is uh, outstanding. Um, but and we have an article on Slashroom about this from uh, Candace Frederick. Um, I can see how the movie is problematic uh, for um, for black people specifically because the movie is meant to depict a time when it was difficult uh, for black people to, you know, travel in the deep South. And the green book is this uh, companion book that kind of showed them safer places that they could stay where they they were surrounded by other, other black people and wouldn't encounter any bigots and be in danger and things like that. But the entire movie is shaped by um, the perspective of Viggo Mortensen's character, um, who uh, is Tony Lip, who's this Italian guy. He's a, um, he himself is kind of a, a cliche, but as I understand it, that, that's very much how this guy was. And at first he's, you know, he's racist, but obviously this, you know, whole road trip with Mahershala Ali, who is this very refri- refined and upscale uh, genius piano player going on a tour of the Deep South and playing at all these rich white country clubs and parties. Uh, you know, they come to have an understanding of each other. But the entire perspective of this is through the this the white guy character. And it kind of molds any significance that the story might have otherwise had. And Peter Farrelly, who is the director, co-director of movies like Dumb and Dumber, and there's something about Mary taking his first dramatic turn here, he kind of, um, I don't know, it just, it, it feels like it's the wrong way to tap into it. And he really made this more about, you know, this uh, surface level um, story where the, there's this friendship that blossoms between this black guy and this white guy. And it's, just, it's very basic. But at the same time, it is so charming. And Mahershala Ali and Viggo Martinson are so good that I couldn't help but still enjoy it but i um i still recognize the the significant flaws that it has because of how it's presented and um you know what it focuses on yes and uh you also watch some some christmas movies yeah so my my girlfriend is she's actually from africa she was um lived in zimbabwe for a lot of her life she's, she's been in the united states for 11 years now she's where she's lived but because of that she didn't have a lot of access to, you know, a huge wealth of, of pop culture like we do here in America. So some of the stuff she experienced through, you know, bootleg videotapes or when movies would arrive in theaters very late down there. And so there's a lot of stuff that she had missed out on that she, you know, vaguely knows about and, you know, understands the cultural significance and that kind of thing, but never really watched it. Like, for example, I just introduced her to uh, Jurassic Park earlier this year because she had never seen it. Um, and she was wary because she had, had seen, you know, been dragged to like Jurassic World by siblings and cousins and didn't like it. I'm like, well, you need to see this because, you know, it's completely different. And so sure enough, she loved it. And so I've been introducing her to movies like that that she's kind of missed out on. And since it's Christmas, um, I sat her down to watch both National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation and A Christmas Story, which are two of my uh, favorite Christmas classics, go-to movies that I watch with my family that I watch, you know, probably twice during the entire Christmas season. Um, and she really liked both of them. You know, um, they, we, we had a good laugh and I, I, I never ceased to laugh during, um, certain scenes in these movies. And, uh, she thought a Christmas story was definitely a little 
weirder uh, and, and definitely picked up on some of the more dated and uh, culturally worrisome aspects of a Christmas story. Um, but, but also enjoyed uh, Christmas Vacation as well, just because of how, you know, outlandishly funny it is and how great Chevy Chase and uh, Randy Quaid are in that movie. So it's, it's been stuff like this. It's been really fun for me to introduce movies like this to her and get her perspective as somebody who didn't grow up watching them and uh, hasn't, you know, hasn't seen them at all. Yeah, I, I love both of those movies. I usually watch both of them around the holiday season. Actually, I saw I sent into the Slack channel. I'm not sure if you saw this, Jacob, but someone in Austin had a display outside their house uh, inspired by Christmas Vacation that actually had someone calling the cops because it looked like someone was like hanging off the roof uh, while you know installing uh, the lights. Uh, that is the least surprising Austin story I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Okay, so uh, Ralph Breaks the Internet and Green Book are now in theaters. Christmas Vacation and A Christmas Story are available streaming where? Uh, they're not available to, for, to stream for free anywhere. We just rented them from uh, Amazon Prime. Okay. Um, ben, what have you been watching? In addition to Into the Spider-Verse, I had a chance to sit down and watch the new Netflix movie from the Coen brothers, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, and I really enjoyed this. It's uh, It was one of those that Jacob was talking about with Suspiri- or with uh, the favorite, rather, sort of feeling like it might be homework, and I had kind of heard mixed things about the movie and kind of thought that it might be <laughs> homework in terms of just like, oh, it's another Coen brothers movie, but I don't know if this one's going to be up to snuff, really. It's like an anthology that tells, I think it's six stories uh, over the course of just over two hours and it's all it all takes place in the American West and I ended up really really liking this movie I think uh, most of the stories I I really appreciated what they're going on it's a gorgeously shot film even though there's like some really blatant weird looking CG in it I think even with those sort of outlier moments the rest of the movie like the the vistas and the uh, you know I mean it's typical of Western cinematography but it's it's gorgeous to look at and the performances are all really enjoyable um i mean tim blake nelson as the titular buster scruggs in the first one is particularly great uh it really gets off to a a great sort of surprising foot uh in the very beginning of the movie and then um yeah there are some that are uh, some of these like uh, anthology entries or whatever are a little bit more inscrutable than others but i think there's enough uh, craft on display. There's enough greatness in the the writing and the way that the Coens uh, create dialogue for their characters that um, that it, it's definitely it's easy for me to recommend that if you're even remotely a Coen Brothers fan that this uh, movie is worth checking out. I think there's one part in particular that involves Liam Neeson, uh, one of the the little shorts that I was reminded a lot of. Uh, uh, inside Lewin Davis, which I talked about rewatching relatively recently. And just the idea of that scene in Lewin Davis where he goes to Chicago and sits there and sort of like pours his heart and soul into the song for like a record producer. And the guy just ends up saying, you know, I, I don't really see much money in this. And it's just this, uh, this transactional relationship that, uh, that is just like completely <laughs> like, like stalled before it even begins there. I feel like that's a theme that the Coen brothers come back to over and over again, the idea of um, of the masses not appreciating art when it's being uh, delivered to them. And I think you can read some of that into uh, the Ballad of Buster, Buster uh, Scruggs uh, if you want to, if you're looking for it, it. I feel like that theme is there. So, um, yeah, I'd, I'd recommend it. It's on Netflix right now. 
Very cool. Let's move on to what we've been eating. Last week, I forgot to talk about this, but while I was having my week of uh, splurging on food before I went back on my diet, I did go to the AMC Theater, and I've I've been on a diet ever since they've had like their like really new offerings. And I'm I'm not sure if you guys have seen this, uh, Jacob. You probably haven't because you go to the draft house. But they now offer three different kinds of popcorn. So they offer normal popcorn. They offer caramel corn. They offer this nacho cheese popcorn that has uh, the Flaming Hot Cheetos in them. And they also offer a popcorn bucket that you can combine two of those flavors into one bucket. Now, I went up there. I was hungry. So I went up there and I ordered one of these buckets where you could combine the flavors. I thought they were just going to throw you know, two of those different flavors of popcorns or varieties of popcorns into a bucket. But what they actually do is they put a divider in the popcorn bucket. So half the bucket is one thing and half the bucket is the other thing. And I got the caramel corn and the uh, nacho cheese flaming hot Cheetos varieties together, which is, I, I think, a little bit of a uh, <laughs> conflict of flavors there because you got the sweet and you got the spicy. Uh, but I was wondering what you guys think of this. Like, uh, do... <laughs> Should should like a chain theater be offering like a, a an option to have two different kinds of popcorn? I, I guess it makes sense if like you and your spouse or a significant other want different things, right? Um, but I I can't I can't recommend myself eating handfuls of uh, caramel popcorn with these flaming hot Cheetos popcorn at the same time. It's it d- does not mix well. It's a weird question to ask. Be like, should we be mixing popcorns at the movie theater? <laughs> it's like, it's like this is, this is the question that they ask. Like, like, wait a minute, do, should couples be sleeping in the same bed? <laughs> like, it's just, it's just a thing, you know. Like, um, but I, I will say, I think that the the caramel corn with the nacho flaming Cheetos one was probably a bad choice. But the but cheese popcorn with caramel corn that that's a normal thing. That's a, it's actually called, um, I think it's the Chicago mix is what it's called because I believe Chicago is the one that made it. Uh, like a thing and like um, it's very popular here even if you were at, at the O'Hare airport in Chicago they have like a stand that sell, um, sells the popcorn with where it's the cheese popcorn and caramel corn together all mixed together um, so it, it's a normal thing that it's a combination of the, the salty and sweet um, which it, it kind of works um, I can't imagine it works well with the flaming Cheetos since that spice kind of makes it a little bit weird and I don't like flaming Cheetos but I, I think I, li- I like that movie theaters are offering it I think the variety is is nice um yeah anyways uh so that's available at amc theaters uh maybe not all amc theaters but at least all the amc theaters that i've been to in la uh brad you've always you're always eating something uh new and unique what have you been eating this week i haven't really eaten much unique i've gone to some cool restaurants here nothing like mind-blowing or anything like that um but i did learn that uh utah does have this and it's not necessarily unique to just utah but it is pretty abundant over here as opposed to everywhere else um, it's called apple beer, and it is, it's not actually beer. It's not like a Red's apple ale or a, an Angry Orchard or something like that, it, but it, it's more like an, an apple soda, basically. Um, and so I, I found out here that actually there's a wide variety of soft, drink, um, soft drinks options available here in Utah, and my girlfriend was telling me that it's largely because um, the Mormon population, you know, the part of their religion is not drinking alcohol, really. And so because of that, they've made a much larger, wider variety of drinks so that they have, you know, more options since they're not really drinking a lot of alcohol. 
And uh, so they have this thing here. It's called apple beer. Uh, you, they have it at certain restaurants, have it available as like a fountain drink. They have it in bottles. They have it in cans. Uh, and it is so good. And it's actually not all that uh, bad for you, uh, you could say, because it's it's uh, it's caffeine-free, it's gluten-free, and it's made with pure cane sugar. So it's, uh, it's not, you know, one of the, the worst soft drinks you can get. And it's extremely tasty. I, I, it's, like, it's basically like drinking uh, carbonated apple juice. It's, it's so good. Very cool. Apple beer. Uh, where can where can you get that other than where you found it? If you if you go to the Apple beer website, which is just applebeer.com, they have a store locator of where you can find it. It looks like it's not super easy to find in every area. Like I looked in my area over in the Midwest and the closest one to me was down in Indianapolis, which is like a two and a half hour drive for me. Um, so it, it's not the easiest to find in all areas of the country, but just go look on the website and see if you can get it near you and give it a shot because it's, it's really good. Very cool. Uh, now let's move on to what we've been playing. Uh, Jacob, you are the lone gamer this week. What have you been playing? I had a game night last weekend, and most games played were stuff I've discussed in the show before, but I want to talk about a new game uh, called Welcome 2 that uh, kind of blew me away. It's very fun. It's from a uh, genre of game called Roll and Write, and the earliest version of a Roll and Write game would be Yahtzee. The kind of a, a Roll and Write game is where uh, dice are rolled in the middle of the table, or uh, and using the options in the middle of the table, you um, make choices on your own <laughs> and, and and shape your strategies on your own player sheet. That's kind of the, the loose idea of what this genre of game is. And the past few years, the roll and write games have become um, increasingly um, more ambitious and interesting. And I'm using this this basic template to do really cool things. And welcome to is a roll and write game without dice. Instead of dice, there are various card combinations that come out. And the theme of this game is that you are a, a neighborhood designer. You're trying to build the perfect suburban neighborhood. And your player sheet is a whole bunch of lots, uh, blank lots. And when the card combinations come out, there are house numbers, and you can put them into the uh, house blank house lots in, in ascending order. So each row of houses can be one, two, three, four. Or you can skip and go from one to three, but then you have nowhere for a two. So you got to play very craftily based on the numbers as they come out and try to select um, the best chances you have of putting numbers in the order uh, that will satisfy your strategy. And there are also, but the way thing is there are numerous other different abilities to come out with the, uh, with the house number cards. It all sounds like there's a lot going on. And there is at first. It was a, took my group maybe 15 minutes to really latch on to how to play. It was only a half hour game. And by the time it was over, everybody kind of really got it. And you just want to put your numbers in the right places while using other abilities to manipulate those numbers uh, to get your neighborhood built. That's the game in a nutshell. But there are many ways to do that, and it's a lot of fun. And uh, even though it's a pretty straightforward game, the theme allows it so you can look at your neighbor and see, like, oh, your neighborhood's really crappy. Everybody laughs, and and, and everybody compares their neighborhoods and has a really good time. It was, it, it, We had a really fun time with this. It's only like a $30 game. It's not expensive, and it can have a high player count. And once everybody learns it, it's pretty straightforward and simple. It, it, it has that European design thing where it was from a French designer. So there is not a lot of text on the reference cards to help you you know, learn how to play. Uh, what there is is lots of graphics. And this is so it can be printed in multiple languages without the need to translate great swaths of, of, of reference text. And once you learn what everything means symbology-wise, it's really useful. But there's that hump when you first start to figure out oh, what all these arrows mean. <laughs> but that's welcome to. It is a 
really excellent game. It's available now. Um, and maybe a little too complex for, you know, younger kids, but definitely a good family game, especially people who are a little open-minded to um, a slightly more complex, you know, family game. Uh, but on the other end of the spectrum, I have been reading a lot of um, Octung Cthulhu RPG manuals. And this is, uh, well, this Octung Cthulhu is uh, a series from Modifius Entertainment. And it pretty much feels like it was catered cater to me. Like someone has said, what can we make an RPG line to appeal directly to Jacob over at SlashFilm.com? And what it is, is it says, what if the Call of Cthulhu RPG uh, line, you know, based on H.P. Lovecraft's uh, world uh, of monsters and creatures and unknown dread. But what if we took that and put it in World War II? And what if we designed a series of manuals that added additional rules for Call of Cthulhu games and added additional um, scenarios and lore where it says lets you role play during World War II? So it's a combination of um, extremely nerdy um, Lovecraftian elements, ideas, monsters, creatures, suggestions, mythology, letting you pick and choose to build adventures, but also extremely realistic, um, extremely detailed history of World War II campaigns and fronts. So let's you say, okay, you want to um, have a a supernatural adventure uh, on the Eastern Front in this particular year of World War II. Okay, here's what's going on in that year, in that region, and here are a bunch of monsters that could conceivably be there. Have fun and build your campaign. <laughs> so if you, it's a combination of like really intricate military history and really intricate Lovecraft stuff, which like scratches so many so many of my itches. It's so satisfying. I don't, I don't know if I'll ever get a game of this together. Uh, who knows? I would love to, um, but just reading through like the details of the, the contrast between uh, the history and the non-history and imagining uh, mashing together is a whole lot of fun. And like, so I'm like, I, I get pleasure from reading these manuals, even, even I can't get the game to the table, but that, but they're a lot of fun. I'm pretty sure a new edition's on the way, which is going to render all my current editions null and moot unless I find ways to hack them to re- work with the new stuff. But uh, I'm having so much fun just reading them. Very cool. And that is called? Uh, Octung Cthulhu. Yeah, I was going to pronounce it, but I, I, I decided I could not. Um, okay, we have reached the end of today's Slash Film Daily. Uh, you can find all of our work on SlashFilm.com and in uh, our various social media profiles. Uh, you can find this podcast, Slash Film Daily, published every weekday on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to peter at slashfilm.com. And you can also send your questions for life advice uh, corner with Chris Evangelista there as well. That's peter at slashfilm.com. Please leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention the email on the air. And please go rate and review this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends, spread the word, and we'll see you tomorrow. Hey, Peter, we, we can't end the show yet. Do you, do you know what time it is? Yeah, I know. I know what time it is. Uh, it, it is time to read from the book, the gargantuan book of insult, offense, and affrontery by Louis A. Safian. Uh, right. Do do we have to? Oh yeah, um, we have to. Especially, uh, I've been encouraged by Twitter. Uh, some people say this is a highlight of, of their entire show. <laughs> I love that we're like giving our like reactions to movies but no they just care about you writing reading a joke out of a old book <laughs> uh well peter i've randomly opened to the speakers section and all you need to get your second wind is to say and now in conclusion 
Well, Ben, I heard that sigh. Uh, <laughs> as a speaker, you're like a ship. You toot the loudest when in a fog. Jacob, these are getting worse. <laughs> Somehow. I didn't think it was possible. It's just, it's just so funny how niche these are. How is this book reprinted in, like, <laughs> recent times? I uh, don't know, but HT, her, uh, her speech is like a wheel. The longer the spoke, the greater the tire. Uh, 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 hey, Chris, <laughs> your speech is like a bad tooth. The longer it takes to draw it out, the more it pains. Mm, wow. <laughs> and, and, and Brad, you need no introduction. What you need is a conclusion. <laughs> I like that That, one. that one's That's actually good. good. Classic. Classic insults. <laughs> I feel like one of these days you got to go through this book and actually like find like the best insult in the book and tell us what is the according to you the best of the best. Well, I randomly opened the failure page. Let's try right now. Oh no. <laughs> uh, Peter, at twenty you knew nothing. At forty you've done nothing. At sixty you'll have nothing. That's just mean. It's really mean. Oh my god, that's so mean. That's just so mean. Like, there's not. That's not even funny. That's not. There's no joke there. <laughs> it's just a very cruel put down. It's just the truth. <laughs> no, 